0: The title of my sermon this morning is The Priority of God's Word. The Priority of God's Word. Obedience to God's Word is the overwhelming priority of God's Word for God's people. To say it another way, God's prime concern for his people is that we would obey him. The main way that God's people can bring true and acceptable worship to God is through faithful obedience from the heart to his word we see this biblical fact in the law of God. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, where we have the, what is called and referred to as the great Shema, the, the call upon God's people to listen so as to obey. In Deuteronomy chapter 6 in verses 1 through 5, it says, Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the judgment, which Yahweh your God has commanded me to teach you, that you might do them in the land where you are going over to possess it. Moses is is preaching a message in order to prepare God's people as they get ready to go into the promised land on on how they should live their lives upon possessing that land. Verse 2, So that you and your son and your grandson might fear Yahweh, your God. To keep all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be prolonged. O Israel, you should listen and be careful to do it, that it may be well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, just as Yahweh, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel. Yahweh is our God. Yahweh is one. You shall love Yahweh with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. True love for Yahweh is inseparably linked to our obedience. We see this reiterated in the narrative segment of God's Word. We could go to passage after passage, but... Just to highlight one in Joshua chapter 1 and and, and verse 8. Well, starting in verse 7, as as God commissions Joshua to to follow His word and to lead His people. He says, Only be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left so that you may have success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have success. We also see this main point uh, uh, stated in in the poetry and, and wisdom portions of God's word. Psalm 119 Chapter that Pastor Moses is so close to finishing. All the way back in the first stanza of Psalm 119 in verse 4, the psalmist writes, You have, referring to God, you have ordained your precepts. Why? That we should keep them diligently. In other words, one of the main reasons why God ordained His word, why God gave us His word, is that we, His people, would keep them His word diligently. It took Solomon all of his life to come to this final conclusion. In Ecclesiastes chapter 12 and verse 13, after he had pursued everything that this world had to offer him. The conclusion, when all has been heard, is fear God and keep his commandments. Because this applies to every person. God wants his people to obey. We, saw, we see this call to obey God all throughout the prophets as well. You could go to, to all the different prophets where Isaiah and Jeremiah and others are saying, listen, hear, O Israel, hear, O Israel, listen so as to obey. Listen to the word of God. Go back to obeying Him. Well, as we know, they, they failed to do so, characteristically speaking. And when, it, when they came to the end, after they had been brought back to the promised land, after their exile in Babylon, it's astounding to consider their history. In Nehemiah chapter 8, the, the people um, are, are calling for Ezra to bring the book We want to hear the book of the law of Moses. You see that in Ezra or Nehemiah, chapter eight. And verse 1, and so Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly and he read it all to them. And then he and others begin to explain to them in verse 8. They read from the book from the law of God, translating to give the sense so that they understood the reading. It wasn't a translation into another language. That was an explanation, an exegesis, an exposition of the law of God so that God's people could understand it. And upon that reading and explanation, there was a massive reform among the people. And you have this prayer of confession in Nehemiah 9. Now, I'm not going to read all of it, but but I want to pick up portions to show you the overwhelming uh, focus of the discipline that God had placed upon them was because of not listening to the word of God. In Nehemiah 9 and starting in verse 5 they they begin their prayer by uh, exalting Yahweh and and highlighting his greatness in in his creation and his work in in life to all of all men and then he highlights they highlight uh, God's call of the nation of Israel upon Abram and and how he was faithful to them and how he led how God led the, him out into the land of the Canaanites Then they highlight uh, the affliction of Israel and Egypt and their slavery there and how God heard their cry and, and led them out by those miraculous signs and brought them to Mount Sinai. And in verse 13 it says, "...then you came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven. You gave them just ordinances and true laws, good statutes and commandments." So you made known to them your holy Sabbath and laid down for them commandments, statutes, and law through your servant Moses. You even provided everything they needed, not only spiritually, but physically. Verse 16. But they, our fathers, acted arrogantly. They became stubborn and would not listen. That's our great Shema. They would not listen so as to obey your commandments. They refused to listen and did not remember your wondrous deeds. Then they, they make the golden calf, and then God has compassion upon them, and He continues to, to instruct them. He provided for them in their wilderness wanderings. Uh, their clothes did not wear out, nor did their feet swell, according to verse 21. He gave them possession of the land of Sion and and gave them victory. Continued to, to, to fulfill His promise and make their numbers numerous as the stars of the heaven. They entered the land. And God gave them the land like He had promised in verse 26. But they became disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their backs and killed your prophets who admonished them so that they might return to you. And they committed great blasphemies. So there in the land, they continued to go back to their own uh, wayward ways and, and disobey and not listen to the word of God. And God in His grace and love towards them would continue to send His prophets over and over and over that they would hear the word of God and listen so as to obey. They did not Verse 29, they acted arrogantly and did not listen to your commandments, but sinned against your ordinances, by which if a man observes them, he shall live. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiff neck, stiffened their neck and would not Shema. They would not listen. Verse thirty-four. Even further, God gave them much grace then it says, For our kings, our leaders, our priests, and our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your admonitions, which you have admonished them. God wants the obedience of His people. And that theme continues right on into the New Testament, even from the lips of our Lord Jesus Christ. In John chapter 14, as He is... Spending time with those of his closest followers in the upper room. And he would tell them in John 14, 15, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Again, love for God is inseparably linked to obedience. And of course, what is the call upon our lives, that great commission that, that Christ has sent us out on in this world from His full authority that God had given to Him in Matthew 18. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Verse 19, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Not only to preach the gospel to them, but to teach them to observe all that Christ commands. And that word observe is, literally means to persist in obedience. Teach them to devote their whole lives to doing what I tell them to do. Well, I say all this because that is exactly the point that we find in 1 Samuel 15. The overwhelming priority of God's word for his people, and in particular for the king of his people, is obedience. God tells Saul, listen so as to obey. And then he even tells him, This, in verse 22 of 1 Samuel 15, has Yahweh as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying, that's our word Shema, the voice of Yahweh? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. God wants... His people to obey. Now we come to the point in our study of 1st and 2 Samuel. Remember, uh, they were one book in the original manuscripts where the author of, of Samuel is setting the stage for David, God's choice for a king to take the throne. And in 1 Samuel 15, the the full and, and final rejection of King Saul is reiterated. The king of the people's choice. That the king that is comparable to all the pagan surrounding nations has forfeited the privileged throne of the people of God. And you might say that the drama king is back at it again. We see this in 1 Samuel 15. And as you've already probably accurately speculated, going through this entire passage is going to take us more than one sermon. And so since we're going to do that, I want to read all of it for you as we get ready to dive into it. So follow along as I read in First Samuel chapter 15. And I'll read it all for us so that we can have a preview of how this thing unfolds. Then Samuel said to Saul, this is probably 15 to 20 years after his um, disobedience in Gilgal, the first time. Then Samuel said to Saul, Yahweh sent me to anoint you as king over his people, over Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of Yahweh. Thus says Yahweh of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he set himself against him on the way while he was coming up from Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and utterly destroy all that he has and do not spare him. But put to death both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. And Saul summoned the people and numbered them in lame. 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 men of Judah. Saul came to the city of Amalek and, and set an ambush in the valley. Saul said to the Kenites, go, depart, go down from among the, Am- the Amalekites, so that I do not destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the sons of Israel when they came up from Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. So Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as you go to Shur, which is east of Egypt. He captured Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people Spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the the fatlings, the lambs and all that was good and were not willing to destroy them utterly, but everything despised and worthless they utterly destroyed. Then the word of Yahweh came to Samuel saying, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not carried out my commands." And Samuel was distressed and cried out to Yahweh all night. Then Samuel arose early in the morning to meet Saul, and it was told Samuel, saying, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself. Then turned and proceeded on down to Gilgal. Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed are you of Yahweh. I have carried out the command of Yahweh. But Samuel said, what then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? Saul said, they have brought them from the Amalekites for the people spared the best of the sheep and oxen to sacrifice to Yahweh your God. But the rest we have utterly destroyed. Then Samuel said to Saul, wait and let me tell you what Yahweh said to me last night. And he said to him, speak, Samuel said, is it not true though you were little in your own eyes, you were made the head of the tribes of Israel and Yahweh anointed you king over Israel? Isn't it true that the God is the one that gave you this privilege? Verse 18, and Yahweh sent you on a mission and said, go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are exterminated. Why then did you not obey the voice of Yahweh, but rushed upon the spoil and did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh? Literally in the eyes of Yahweh. Verse 20. Then Saul said to Samuel, I did obey the voice of Yahweh, and went on the mission on which Yahweh sent me, and have brought back Agag, the king of Amalek, and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took some of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the choicest of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to Yahweh your God at Gilgal. Samuel said, Has Yahweh as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of Yahweh? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of uh, divination, and insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of Yahweh, he has also rejected you from being king. Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I have indeed transgressed the command of Yahweh and your words. Stop there, Saul. Because I feared the people and listened to their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me, that I may worship Yahweh. But Samuel said to Saul, I'm not going to return, I will not return with you, for, for you have rejected the word of Yahweh, and Yahweh has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go, Saul seized the edge of his robe and it tore. So Samuel said to him, Yahweh has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to your neighbor who is better than you. Also, the glory of Israel will not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man that he should change his mind. Then he said, I have sinned. Stop there, Saul, (laughs) but please honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel. And go back with me, that I may worship Yahweh your God. So Samuel went back following Saul, and Saul worshipped Yahweh. Then Samuel said, bring me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully, and Agag said, surely the bitterness of death is past. But Samuel said, as your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hewed Agag to pieces before Yahweh at Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Ramah, but Saul went up to his house at Gibeah of Saul. Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death, for Samuel grieved over Saul. And Yahweh regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel you see the gloomy tone over this passage. And I wanted to take some time to walk through it. And so today we're just going to consider two of the seven headings that I have for us to to consider this passage in detail. Number one... Consider with me frightening authority. Frightening authority. The absolute authority of God's word should strike the right type of fear in its readers as we consider the total command of Yahweh over his people. Again, you see that in verses 1 through 3 where Samuel comes to Saul and says, Yahweh sent me to you, now listen to the words of Yahweh. I'm going to punish Amalek, and I want you to wipe him out. The last phrase in verse 1 really does set the prevailing tone of 1 Samuel 15, where he says, listen to the words of Yahweh. Yahweh sent me to anoint you to be king over his people. Now, therefore, listen to the words of Yahweh. And that is the, the great Shema. Listen so as to obey God's word. This word, Shema, is used eight times in this passage. You see it here in verse 1. And in verse 4, the word summoned is also the word Shema. And in that tense, it's It's highlighting that that Saul caused the people to to hear and to come and gather. In verse 14, Samuel uses it in in stating that he hears the bleeding of the sheep and the lowing of the oxen. In verse 19, why then did you not obey the voice of Yahweh? Obey is our word, listen. Verse 20 as well. I did obey, I did listen to the voice of Yahweh. Verse 22, it's used twice as in obeying the voice of Yahweh. And behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. And again in verse 24, because I feared the people and I actually listened to their voice. It's not that Saul didn't hear what God had to say to him through Samuel. It is that he didn't listen. I've had a little extra time with some sixth graders this past week. And it's interesting when the teacher gives a group of sixth graders some instructions doesn't matter how hard or how simple those instructions may be. It seems like they never hear them. Just, just simply take the page I handed you and the packet I give you and staple it to the top of your packet. <laughs> Don't look through it. Don't disorganize it. Just take the paper, stick it on top of the packet, and staple it. I'll tell you how many papers I had to help organize and staple and then say, well, what do we do again? How often do we hear a message from God's word and yet fail to listen? The priority of Yahweh in giving his word is that we would listen so as to obey. That priority was for the king as well. The king of God's people would be evaluated by God, not not based on his military expertise, not not on their ability to gain a following, and not on their popularity with the culture, but on their disposition to listen to God's word so as to obey it. Though the king had authority, it was a God-given authority and a God-directed authority. And here in these first three verses, Samuel goes out of his way to highlight the ultimate authority of God's word. Again, you see it there in verse 1. Yahweh sent me to anoint you as king over his people, over Israel. Now therefore, listen to the words of Yahweh. You see here that that Samuel highlights that Yahweh has exercised his sovereignty over the entire operation. Saul, you are in this position because God is the one in charge. Saul, you are here because God has sovereignly decided to place you here. So listen to his words. And again, he gives this imperative It's a command to listen to the words of Yahweh. The command given to Saul, the king, to listen so as to obey. In other words, what is stated here, Saul, is not optional for you. Furthermore, notice the title that Samuel uses for Yahweh in verse 2 to highlight the supreme authority of God, thus says Yahweh of hosts. Now, the first time this phrase is used of God, this title for Yahweh is used, is in First Samuel. If you remember back to First Samuel chapter one and verse three, there we're introduced to the Yahweh of hosts, and. This phrase signifies his ability and right to rule over all things as the omnipotent sovereign one. As he's the one who holds all the armies of heaven at his disposal. It highlights uh, Yahweh's unmatched dominion and authority over all things. And this is why Samuel uses this formula. Saul, listen so as to obey the words of Yahweh, because His word is the final authority, because He is the unmatched chief in command. In fact, if you were to you know, mark uh, the times this is used 76 times in the prophets, according to, to, to one commentator, it's always to emphasize the authority of the message. Yahweh of hosts says this. And this authority doesn't only apply to his people, God's people. It extends to all people. Notice verses 2 and 3. Yahweh says, or thus says Yahweh of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel how he set himself against him on the way while he was coming up from Egypt. In other words, what the pagan nations do, God still sees and holds them all accountable. Now go and strike Amalek and utterly destroy all that he has and do not spare him, but put to death both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey." This is a frightening authority. As the past and present actions of the Amalekites were under the sovereign gaze of God. 300 years prior to this in the history of the world, when Israel was on their way up from Egypt to the promised land, the Amalekites dealt dirty with God's chosen people. In Exodus chapter 17 we see this story in verses 8 through 14. It says, Then Amalek came and fought against Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose men for us. Go out. Fight against Amalek. Tomorrow I will station myself on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. Joshua did as Moses told him and fought against Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. You remember the story. They had to hold Moses' arms up. So it came about when Moses held his hand up that Israel prevailed. And when he let his hand down, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands were heavy. And they took a stone and put it under him. And he sat on it, and Aaron and her supported his hands, one on one side and one on the other. Thus his hands were steady until the sun set. So Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. Then Yahweh said to Moses, Write this in a book as a memorial and recite it to Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven when you get to Deuteronomy, chapter 25, and, there, Moses is, again, deep into his sermon, in preparation for the nation of Israel, to going to the promised land, and, he is highlighting how they are to handle these measurements and that, and that they should give a just weight, that they, that they shouldn't uh, manipulate the system, that they, they shouldn't lie, essentially. And as an illustration, he says... Starting in verse 16, for everyone does these things, everyone who acts unjustly is an abomination to Yahweh our God. Remember what Amalek did to you along the way when you came out from Egypt? How he met you along the way and attacked among you all the stragglers at your rear when you were faint and weary and he did not fear God? The Amalekites came and took advantage of them. Therefore, it shall come about when Yahweh your God has given you rest from all your surrounding enemies in the land which Yahweh your God gives you as an inheritance to possess. You shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You must not forget. Well, God in his gracious reminding here reminds them to blot out Amalek. And God gives his rejected king a gracious opportunity to be used in God's just vengeance and punishment upon a wicked people. Now, some people have a problem with this command of Yahweh to Saul. I mean, after all, God is telling Saul, I want you to wipe out All these people. I mean, this is genocide. And if we admit, it is absolutely startling to consider that God would strike down a nation to the infant. In fact, often God's word is as frightening as it is authoritative. How can we reconcile This command to utterly destroy down to the infant with a God who is self proclaimed as gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in loyal love. I love what one commentator says. He says, This this total curse of destruction sounds horrid. He says, First, it is horrid. Second, our claim is only that scripture is true, not that it is sanitized. Third, Yahweh's vengeance should not be repudiated, but praised if it is virtuous vengeance. That is, if it is a just vengeance, close quote. And it was a just vengeance. Vengeance. God reserves the right to enact his punishment on a sinful people at whatever moment he so chooses. He is just and therefore everything he chooses to do, whenever he chooses to do it, is just. And it's not only the past actions of the ancestors of Amalek that is punished here, according to verse 18 of 1 Samuel 15 and of verse 33, it's also in the present, He says, go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites. And in verse 33, as your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. A wicked king. But notice how patient Yahweh's justice often is. Remember, this is 300 years since Amalek took advantage of God's people there and their way up from Egypt. One commentator says, "Is, is Yahweh not slow to anger when he gives them 300 years to repent? Also consider how many generations of wickedness Yahweh patiently endured before he drowned the whole world in a flood. And how many years have gone by since the flood? And still, God's justice waits patiently over this wicked world. God has the right to destroy a wicked nation at the very moment of their sin. But how patient He it is to, to give people ample opportunity to turn from that sin. But know this, just like for the Amalekites, though 300 years later, and just like all those who drowned in the flood, the exercise of God's patience will come to an end for those who remain in their sins. And there is coming a day when God will enact His righteous vengeance on this wicked world. And when he does violently and horrifically pour out his wrath, it will be a righteous vengeance. And according to Matthew 7, most people in this world are on that road that leads to destruction. You see, the gospel truth not only highlights the love and forgiveness of God. I mean, it does that. I mean, consider the good news of God's grace and love and forgiveness in light of your sin. Consider what it is that you and I deserve from this holy and perfect and righteous God. And how gracious he has been toward us who have caused such an offense against his holiness. And yet in his mercy and his love and his grace, he sent his son to die in our place. And it is Jesus, the second member of the triune God, the the God-man who came and took upon Himself the full weight of God's wrath on behalf of sinners like you and me. And then God, in His mercy and grace, has called out to the masses through His people, hey, repent, trust in God's forgiveness, trust in God's grace. He'll save you if you would but come. I mean, that is good news. The gospel certainly highlights the forgiveness and love of God. But it also emphasizes the awful vengeance and wrath of God. And it seems to be in our nature to want the fluff. When it is in God's nature to want fear. And Saul should have feared God as a result of this frightening and authoritative command. And that is exactly the reason God says what He says through the prophet Samuel to strike the fear of God in Saul so that he would listen so as to obey. Remember, Saul still has not confessed his sin and repented from his disobedience earlier. And I think that's why people so often try to undermine the character of God by questioning His goodness in the face of His wrath. They want the fluff. Because after all, they don't want to submit to a holy God. Because they don't fear Him. And I think that's why we at times have more of a problem with God's rightful vengeance on a nation than with Saul's partial obedience to God. And that's the frightening thing about God's authoritative word. It doesn't flinch in the face of its critics. It doesn't vacillate to the squirming soul. It doesn't soften the blow so that people might like it more. It simply speaks the truth, even hard truth. Saul, go wipe out this nation. God's word is authoritative and that is what Samuel is saying to Saul. Listen so as to obey because God's word demands it. So the priority of God's word is that his people would obey it. So what does Saul do? What does Saul do? Notice his trademark atrocity. Number two, the trademark atrocity. Here we have Saul's trademark move, if you will. The atrocity of almost listening to the words of Yahweh. Look again at Verses 4 through 9, Then Samuel summoned the people and numbered them in Talaam. 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 men of Judah, Saul came to the city of Amalek and set an ambush in the valley. Saul said to the Kenites, Go, depart from among the Amalekites, so that I do not destroy you with them, for you showed kindness to all the sons of Israel when they came up from Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. So Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah, as you go to Shur, which is east of of Egypt things were going so well up through verse 7 I mean we can see that even Saul doesn't just want to wipe a nation out just to wipe them out he shows compassion upon the one of the nations that did show kindness to Israel but almost obeying is almost as good as hitting, or almost obeying is as good as almost hitting your target in the eyes of God. And God doesn't hand out participation trophies. He holds us accountable to the bullseye of His perfect righteousness. And He told Saul, Obey me like this. And look at how God's word strives to help us see Saul's sin as an atrocity. See in verse 8, this is how God's word draws attention to his sin. He captured Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive. And you see the comma there in the English. And and I I love that they put that there, not only because it's grammatically correct for English, but but there is a pause in the Hebrew that that wants us to stop and think wait, what? (laughs) He did what? And utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. And then, verse 9 look at the contrast. And again, the Hebrew there is being absolutely emphatic. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep. And even furthermore, it lets us in to the hearts of the people and they were not willing to destroy them utterly. They were not willing to obey God's Word. So severe was Saul's disobedience that the narrator mention it, mentions it three times in three different ways just so that we don't miss it. And he uses the same word there Saul and the people spared Agag, which literally means to have compassion on, where God says, do not spare him in verse 3. Saul and the people deliberately disobeyed God's specific command. And before we linger too long on Saul's sin of almost obeying, which is really no obedience at all. Find it somewhat easy to sympathize with Saul a little bit? It seems simple to give half hearted devotion to God, doesn't it? I mean, it's so like us to partially obey. But why? What are, what are some of the motivating factors that left Saul short of, of true success in the eyes of God? Why did he disregard the clear command of God and obey only part of God's commands? Why the selective hearing? We don't want to jump too far ahead of ourselves. So we won't unravel the rest of the book, but we do want to jump ahead a little bit because the... The Bible here gives us clues to what's going on in the heart of Saul, and shows in this passage three of the motivating factors that, that caused Paul, that moved Paul or sorry, Saul, to disobey God. You see in verse 12, one of those motivating factors was pride. And isn't that always the case when it comes to disobeying God? Samuel arose early in the morning to meet Saul, and it was told Samuel, saying, Saul came to Carmel, and behold. Again, uh, behold is uh, the way the Hebrew says, t- pay attention, look at this. He set up a monument for himself. Then turned and proceeded on down to Gilgal, That may be one of the reasons why Saul decided to to spare Agag, to say, hey, look at what I did. And that was a pagan way of uh, trumpeting your triumph. To say, look, I've got the king. And we've already seen this from Saul before because back in in 1 Samuel 13 when Jonathan had gone and done exactly what Saul should have done to go and take over the garrison that was in Gibeah. Jonathan in verse 3 of 1 Samuel 13 smote the garrison of the Philistines and the Philistines heard of it. Then Saul blew the trumpet throughout the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. Verse four, all Israel heard the news that Saul had smitten the garrison of the Philistines, and also that Israel had become odious to the Philistines. It was Jonathan who smote that them, and, it, and then we see Saul's continual pride develop throughout. We'll really see it play out all throughout the rest of First Samuel. not only pride, but something we've already discussed before, his rabbit foot theology, his, his lucky charm theology, if you will. You know, if you just rub God the right way with your external ceremonial observances of worship, perhaps God will overlook your heart of disobedience. Verse 21 First of all, he blames the people. But the people took some of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the choices of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to Yahweh, your God, at Gilgal. And he doesn't have the audacity to say, Yahweh, my God, in that moment, by the way. Look, we kept the best so that we could sacrifice to your God. I liken this to our country Christianity that we see around us. You know, we've all heard the country songs. Now, I'm not dogging country music. If you know me, I like to listen to it. Matt, you can take that off for the record's sake. But (laughs) This is not against country music. But we've all heard the songs where they have no problem exalting adultery and drunkenness And in the very same stanza, mentioning the good Lord. with an obvious lowercase L. But they think they're fine. You hear it in their music. It's that type of Christian that is a member of the country church. and, And once in a while, he might attend, especially when when he's going through something difficult in his life. You know, it's that, that type of Christian in our culture that, that will emphasize, you know, one nation under God when he is stating the Pledge of Allegiance. and He may have even served in our military or has a family, family member that does. He's the type of generous guy that will toss a few dollars in the offering plate as it goes by, to sort of bribe God to turn a blind eye to his willful sin. He, he says his prayers before meals and before bed, even sometimes. And he might be able to paraphrase John 3:16 for you. He tries not to get drunk. But if he does, at least he's not like the pothead in Denver. And he only says a bad word when it's really necessary. I mean, this guy, this guy works for a living. He loves his country. He loves his guns. And he believes in God. And it's certainly in that order. And while he can tell you everything there is to know... About his 12 gauge, his pickup truck, he's virtually illiterate when it comes to the Bible. All the while, hoping that this self prescribed and self sustained form of Christianity will be enough to tip the odds in his favor on Judgment Day. There's other types of superstitious Christians. You have the conference Christians. They might attend every biblical conference in America and sit under conviction after conviction after conviction of God's Word. And these pre- people can probably uh, uh, debate the, the most deepest and, uh, aspects of, of all of theology to no active avail in their lives. They know God's word, but they don't obey it. Whatever the case for Saul, after several years of no repentance from 1 Samuel 13 and his partial obedience at Gilgal, he still thought his partial obedience was not that big of a deal. As long as he performed some religious activity in the name of sacrifice and worship. It's just too low of a view of God, Saul. And we all have that at times. Another motivating factor for Saul's disobedience, and I'll just put it this way, partial obedience, was also the fear of man. This dude was driven by what the people thought of him. And the Bible already went out of its way to show us that, hey, he was a handsome man, shoulder above the rest of the people. This dude was king material. And he came to know that. And he feared the people, verse 24. Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I have indeed transgressed the command of Yahweh. And we think, this is where it's getting good because here Saul's going to confess his sin, right? Because we've all been there. We have all partially obeyed God. We have all disobeyed God. So what is the hope for us? What we read from 1 John 2 and was prayed earlier from Pastor Doug, Confess your sin and know that Jesus Christ, the righteous, stands between us. But for Saul, it just keeps going. Why? Because I feared the people and listened to their voice. And I don't think here that he's acknowledging his fear of man as sin because I see that you will see it even further when he says, hey, you've got to go back with me and honor, honor honor me before the people. What he's saying here is, I did it, but it was because of the people. They wanted me to do it. Listen, so much obedience has been sacrificed on the altar of sinful fear. Just like love and obedience go hand in hand in God's word, so do fear and obedience. Over the years, my children have come to me at night because they're afraid of something. And it's become common for them to ask, will you pray for me? And my prayer for them is always this God, help them not to be afraid of anything but you. Because you are in control of all things. Instill in them the right type of fear that, that reverential fear of God that recognizes He absolutely should pour His wrath out upon me in all eternity. But He hasn't. That's a terrifying God. That that reverential awe that says, this God is holy. And He has the right in His holiness to offer an entire nation at His word. That holy respect that says, My life must be lived out in full submission to Him because He's Yahweh of hosts. He's the highest authority. It's that type of fear that says, Yeah, this next thing. That I know I need to do is very scary. But what's scarier than God? And I only care what He thinks. Because truly, the fear of Yahweh, as one author puts it, simplifies life. Saul lost the kingdom. Because of his sinful fear. God commands his people to listen. So as to obey. Saul's trademark move was partial obedience. What is yours? Father, we thank you for... The way your word just tells us how it is. Our hope is not in the thought that you would overlook our sin. But that you would graciously confront us with it. And remind us that our only hope is in Christ. Christ. And that the true path to joy and satisfaction in this world as your people is simply to trust and obey. Help us, O Lord, not to excuse our sin, but to own it. And then, in recognition of your astounding grace to forgive every time we confess... Help us to have a renewed passion to persist in obeying you because your word demands it. In Jesus' name, amen.